I do recommend that actually if you've got a Bible, you would open it. Because the main passage that we're going to look at uh, this morning is the end of chapter 11 of Revelation. But we're going to cover the territory of several chapters, uh, 8, 9, 10, and, uh, and 11. I feel really bad about that. <laughs> it was really hard for me to decide how to cover these chapters because basically each verse contains symbols that are probably confusing to a lot of us and uh, deserve explanation. But really, they all paint a picture... Uh, that should be taken together as a whole and the same theme runs through all these chapters that have to do with the the trumpets um, that are being blown here so um, so instead of sort of in-depth explanations and arguments for the interpretation of each and every symbol uh, I've opted to cover the section as a whole which means we'll just be screaming through several chapters and we can't cover all the details so I'm sorry if that's disappointing to you um, but so a little context for where we are before we read the passage, Jesus is revealing something to John. That's what the book of Revelation is. He's pulling back the curtain. He's letting John get a glimpse of uh, the way things really are going according to God's reality, a heavenly perspective, right? So he's revealing something to John in symbolic visions that John is uh, than to write down for the benefit of the churches. So what is Jesus revealing? What's the main thing that Jesus is revealing throughout this, uh, this strange series of symbolic visions? He's revealing his kingdom. <clears throat> he's revealing the kingdom of God. And he's revealing it from a behind-the-scenes heavenly viewpoint. He's revealing some of the specifics that were about to happen in history as the kingdom of God advanced in the world. He's revealing the nature and the character of his kingdom, right? He's, he's revealing what the kingdom looks like as it advances in the world and how it advances in the world. And he's announcing the arrival of his kingdom. And he has to do that because it doesn't seem like his kingdom's coming at all, right? He's announcing the arrival of his kingdom in spite of the fact that it doesn't seem like his kingdom is coming. We need this revelation from Jesus about his kingdom because it just doesn't look like what we would expect. But Jesus wants to reassure us that, in fact, everything is going according to plan. And that's what Revelation's about. That's what our section here is about. So, um, so let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Lord, you have given us your word because you love us, because you want us to know you, because you want us to trust you and to repent of our sins and to follow you. And to be faithful to you and to the proclamation of the gospel. So we pray that you would help us to understand this word. And we pray that this word would shape our relationship with you. For the sake of your kingdom, we pray in the name of your son. Amen. So Revelation 11, starting in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, 
and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, sort of the storyline of uh, of Revelation. The crucified, risen, ascended Lord Jesus. He's the Lion of Judah. And at the same time, he's the Lamb who was slain. He's received the scroll. He's gone into heaven. He's ascended into heaven. He's received the scroll, the plan of the kingdom from God. And in chapters 6 and 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, he opened its seven seals, right? It's the beginning of the opening of the scroll of the kingdom of God. He opens the seven seals and he sets events in motion that the early church began to see. Things like what we have recorded for us in the book of Acts. They're the early, you could say, the rumblings of the kingdom of God coming to earth. So the kingdom of Christ, it came in a new phase of God's work at Pentecost. At Pentecost, something new was happening as the Lord poured out his spirit upon his people to continue his work. It's a new phase of his work. It's his work, but it's a new phase of it as carried out by his spirit-filled people. And so this work and this time was characterized by the apparent victories of thousands of conversions, thousands of people coming to trust in Jesus and be baptized into his church, And also, it was characterized by the beginnings of the persecutions of the church, and especially the persecutions of the church that the the Jews were doing. So, the Jews were supposed to be the people of the Messiah. They were the old who had refused to become new. They refused to be converted. They refused to repent of their sins and follow Christ and be baptized into his church. And they had resisted and rejected their Messiah, and now... Because of that, they stood in conflict with Jesus, they stood in conflict with his kingdom, and with his people. And that conflict between the old and the new, that conflict between the Jews, the people of Israel, who refused to become part of Christ's kingdom, and the church, the people who have bent the knee to Christ, right? that conflict was revealed by the Lord Jesus to be part of the plan. And that's something really difficult for us to believe or to understand. It feels like the Jews' refusal to bend the knee to Jesus should be considered an abortion of the plan, or an interruption of the plan, or at least a delay to the plan. It's a wrench thrown into the gears, it's a threat or an obstacle to the kingdom advancing, as we all think it should, with success after success, after victory after victory. But it's there in the seals, and it's part of the scroll, and it's written from eternity that these conflicts are precisely how God has intended to advance his kingdom. After all, it's the Lamb who is the Lord of the kingdom. It's the Lamb who is worthy to take the scroll. It's the Lamb who is opening its seals. Right. So when Jesus reveals himself using that symbolic imagery of the Lamb, he does that in order to remind us of this very counterintuitive truth that's at the heart of the gospel, that his power is in his sacrificial love. The love that led him to sacrifice himself on the cross for the good of his people. He's not a king who gains ground, who wins territory, who advances his kingdom 
by grabbing for earthly power to dominate. That's not the kind of king he is. His power is in laying down his life and in taking it up again in death and resurrection for the sake of his people. That's the nature of his power, death and resurrection. His own death and his own resurrection. And the power of his kingdom will look the same way. Right? That's the message of a lot of the scriptures. That's the message of a lot of Revelation. Is that the power of the kingdom of Christ will look exactly like the power that he exercised in his own lifetime on earth. And the death and resurrection of his people will move his kingdom forward. The death and resurrection of his people will move his kingdom forward. So, after Jesus opened the seals in chapter 8, you've got a new phase here in, this, in these visions that seven angels are given seven trumpets. And it marks, it's, it's the next phase of the perfect execution of God's plan, right? The number seven symbolizes perfection. This is God's plan just being perfectly executed when these seven angels have these seven trumpets to announce definitively the arrival of his kingdom, right? So trumpets, you can't ignore a trumpet. Uh, even if you muffle it, really, you can't ignore it. It's a loud instrument that startles you to attention. So trumpets are used in the Bible to, uh, for, for a few purposes, right, to announce feast days. They're used for, for announcing things. Feast days, or to herald the coming of God's kingdom, or the arrival of God himself. One of the most memorable uses of trumpets in the Old Testament, that I think is relevant for our passage, it's in Joshua. As the people of God enter the promised land and they take Jericho. So in Joshua, it says uh, that Yahweh told Joshua, you shall march around the city of Jericho, all the men of war going around the city once, and thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, and on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up. Right? So, those themes we find uh, in our Old Testament reading. Psalm 47. It says, Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us. Right? He's advancing his kingdom. He subdued peoples under us, and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. <clears throat> so trumpets announce the advance of God's kingdom. And, the, and that means, the advance of God's kingdom means the subduing of the nations. It means bringing all <clears throat> the people of the nations into God's kingdom, the, the kingdom of the God of Abraham as it said in Psalm 47. So, this is what the seventh trumpet of Revelation announces in, uh, in our passage that we read in verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The trumpets announce the coming of his kingdom. But we would expect that proclamation, the way it's worded, and the way we understand such things, we would expect it to be immediately followed by, and the people of God all lived happily ever after, the end. Right? 
the kingdom of God has, uh, has come to the world. So everything's going to be great after that. But instead, uh, when these trumpets are blown, we, we get a story of increasing troubles. In fact, each time one of the seven angels blows a trumpet, it brings tidings of conflict and, dis- and destruction and death. So at the first trumpet in chapter 8, verse 7, it says that a third of the earth was burned up. That's, that's symbolic language. This is full of symbolic language. We, we can hardly take any of uh, this section of Revelation literally without sort of interpreting symbols to understand what, uh, what the author means by it and what, uh, what kind of symbols are, how they're related to the rest of the scriptures. That, that word earth, when it says a third of the earth was burned up, the word earth, it doesn't mean the whole world. It really probably should be translated land. That would help us to understand the symbol a little bit better. Because in the Old Testament, the land often refers to the land that it's a, of the people of Israel. It's the land, the promised land, <clears throat> the place where Israel dwelt, the place that was um, specific to God's people in the Old Testament. It's the land. So the earth or the land represents the Jewish people. And here it uh, probably represents actually the Jewish people who have refused to acknowledge Jesus as Christ and Lord. So, as we've already seen in Revelation, in the events that are following Pentecost, the church is, spiritually speaking, thrown down from heaven to earth, filled with the fire of the Holy Spirit, thrown upon the earth, thrown upon the land, thrown upon the Jewish people. And the Jews began to kill them. That's the story that we find in the book of Acts. The Jews began to to kill the people who were filled with the fire of the Holy Spirit so that the blood of the martyrs came upon them. And so the Jews began to die spiritually. When they did that, when they resisted Jesus and his kingdom and started killing his people, they themselves began to die spiritually. And so at the second trumpet, in the next verse, and we're not going to cover this all verse by verse, just, just a little bit of it. <clears throat> at the second trumpet in, cha- in chapter 8, verse 8, the mountain represents not just the Jewish people, but the, the heart of the Jewish people, right? It's, their, it's the temple on, uh, on the Mount Zion in Jerusalem, right? It's the Jewish religious center. It's the stronghold of their identity as, their, as a people, that's the mountain and the mountain is on fire thrown into the sea which reminds us of the time that Jesus talked about that in the gospels but throughout the bible the sea often represents the Gentile pagan nations the place of chaos and tumult apart from God's uh, kingdom right so the sea represents the Gentiles so the church the church is filled with fire of the Holy Spirit in testimony of Christ they when they come and they're thrown down upon the Jews, the Jews are inflamed. The Jews associated with the temple, especially the religious leaders, are inflamed and enraged to so passionately reject Christ and his kingdom that, that the mountain, the temple, the Jewish religion that stood in rejection of Christ was, in a sense, cast into the sea. It's just become another part of the sea of the nations that are raging 
against the one true God and against his Messiah. There's nothing to distinguish anymore. The Temple Mount, the Jewish religious identity apart from Christ, there's nothing to distinguish them from all the nations that are raging against God and against his Christ. The mountain is cast into the sea. And this is not good news here in the second trumpet. It's not good news for the Gentile nations. Right? And it only serves to bring about further spiritual death as those who purportedly worship Yahweh join the rest of the nations in raging against his kingdom, actually. And at the third trumpet, in uh, chapter 8, verse 10, the great star who falls from heaven and falls on these, these waters, the great star represents the devil. He's called here Wormwood. He goes by a lot of names in the scriptures. Uh, and he falls upon the rivers and the springs of water. And the rivers and the springs of water are fresh water sources. They're living waters. And they represent actually the church that has the message of the gospel, which brings life. So Wormwood turns a third of these church waters bitter and deadly, which means he poisons the proclamation of the gospel in a substantial part of the church, especially through false teachers like the Judaizers who taught that the Gentiles in the church had to keep the Jewish law. Nothing was more insidious than that. Even Peter was deceived by that teaching for a while, and nothing made Paul angrier. You can read about that in his letter to the Galatians. But when Wormwood comes from heaven, when Satan comes and he plagues the church and he corrupts the living waters of the church so that people can't hear the gospel, people die spiritually. People die spiritually because of false teaching like legalism. And these are the kinds of troubles that abound as Christ, as his kingdom advances. These are the kinds of troubles that abound that as Christ's kingdom advances. And woes upon his enemies are pronounced. The devil is given uh, uh, power to torment. In general, it is an unpleasant experience for many, and many die spiritually. And there are many parallels between this whole section and the plagues with which God struck Egypt as he delivered his people out of slavery in that land. The plagues were terrible things. But they accomplished God's purposes, and his kingdom was proclaimed by them, clearly. In much the same way here, God was showering down plagues from heaven in order to free his people once and for all from, especially from the captivity and the slavery of Jerusalem and from the Jewish religion that opposed Christ. So in, uh, in this section, in chapter 11, verse 8, Jerusalem is called the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. All right, so Jerusalem is the enemy now. Um, Jesus was revealing to John that the great war of his kingdom was a war between the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem has become just like Sodom and Egypt. And later, and one of the main themes you see in the rest of Revelation is Babylon. The old Jerusalem is an enemy. One, they're, they're one of the great enemies of the true people of God. And God would break the power of of all such enemies and he would deliver his people from their captivity to such enemies but that always means that things get worse before they get better always in the scriptures it means things get worse before they get better and in the kingdom of the lamb 
where his power is in his sacrificial love, it means that the, mer- the most perfect testimony to his kingdom often results in the death of those who bear witness to his kingdom. It's the martyrs. The martyrs bear the most perfect testimony to the kingdom of Christ, the Lamb. In the beginning of chapter 11, as part of the sixth trumpet, you've got two witnesses, and they don't, uh, they don't correspond to like two people that we see any time in history. Um, they probably symbolize actually the, the two groups of peoples who are united in the church in their testimony to, to God and to Christ and to his kingdom. The two groups. It's the Jews and the Gentiles who are brought together in the church by the blood of Christ. The two peoples who are united in the church through the death of Christ. So in the Bible, you need two witnesses. And that's why the number two here, to symbolize um, these witnesses, they're required to establish the truth. These two witnesses together are able to testify to the saving and reconciling power of Christ's love. His sacrificial love, which unites people in the church. Unites Jews and Gentiles. They also bear witness against those who persecute them and slaughter them. And the Jews, the Jews, when they hear that Jews and Gentiles are united in the church through the blood of Christ, they can't stand it. They can't stand Christ's saving, reconciling power. And so they kill these witnesses, and these witnesses bear witness against them. The Jews wanted to silence the church's proclamation of Christ. They wanted to eradicate the church from existence. That's recorded for us in Acts. Before he was Paul, Saul was one of them. He was an example of their fanatical persecution of the church. Wanted to wipe the church out from the face of the earth. So after his conversion, Paul experienced that same persecution from the other side. Right? There were Jews who had made vows never to eat or drink anything again until they'd murdered him. There were Jews who chased him from every city and from city to city in order to silence him, to stop him from speaking about Christ and the reconciliation that's found in him. There were many Jews, not all of them, but especially religious leaders. There were many Jews who treated the church the same way they treated the Lord of the church, the Messiah. And Jesus is revealing to us in this whole section that such things, when these things happen, these are like the trumpets announcing the coming of his kingdom. They're really, they really are the proclamation of his kingdom coming and advancing. We might feel like conflict and persecution and suffering and tribulation and all these difficulties are indicators that the kingdom of Christ is faltering. But these are the indicators that the Lion of Judah is on the move. That the kingdom of the Lamb who was slain, his kingdom is advancing. A good Lord must be in conflict with what is evil. There's going to be conflict. And as his people, in his name, we will find ourselves in the same conflict. And we have to engage in that conflict in the same way that he did, not in some different way. Not with violent force, not with retaliation, not with vengeance and hatred, but in the power of suffering love. And that power can't, can't be stopped. When we do find ourselves in conflict with the world, we can know that only Christ's good purposes can come of it. 
ultimately. When someone attacks Jesus or his people, then that person is exposed as a rebel against the true king and, and against his kingdom. And that person has to do one of two things. Just like Jesus polarized people when he came to the world, his people in his name will polarize people. And, that, and they'll go two ways. They're going to break two ways on us when they come and attack us. The person's either going to repent or find himself judged by his own actions. As the kingdom of Christ inevitably and inexorably advances, people are sifted into one of those two groups. Either they become conscripts in Christ's army, or they meet the fate of God's enemies and they face his wrath. Either way, the kingdom is advancing and you can't stop it. But the kingdom is advancing in this particular way that's, that's full of plagues and conflict and spiritual death and difficulty. It's advancing in this particular way in order to give people the time to repent. That's brought up in this section. And in God's plan, these trumpets are blown to startle people to attention and to repentance. So when the witnesses are killed for their faithfulness there in the beginning of chapter 11, and their persecutors see, at first they rejoice, and they have a party, that we've started to kill the Christians, we've started to kill the church, we've started to kill those who bear witness to Christ's kingdom. They at first have a party, but then they, they see that the church isn't dead. Not anymore. They thought they'd killed it, but the church rises from the ashes, and you get this language of resurrection, the church only grows stronger because of the persecution. And the result of it, it says in 11 uh, verse 13, is that they will be terrified and give glory to the God in heaven. So the trumpets, they bring their conflict. They herald the age of the martyrs. They proclaim that the kingdom of Christ is advancing and the nations are being subdued. And they, And as they see... As the nations see, as the Jews see, as everyone who persecutes the church will see, they, they see the death and resurrection of the church that's patterned after the power of the Lord of heaven and earth, his death and resurrection. <clears throat> so you cannot escape the reality of Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus is Lord. It's already happened. It's already true. God has already crowned him. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's nothing you can do about that. We do pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? Because there's a sense in which his kingdom here on earth is not the same as it is in heaven. God already rules the earth, and Jesus already has all authority on earth, and his kingdom is advancing throughout the earth, and you can't stop it. It's just that all his subjects in heaven are perfectly delighted with his rule while not all his subjects on earth are so delighted. But the truth is, no matter who you are, no matter what you think of Jesus, if you live in this world, you're one of the subjects of his kingdom. That is true. He has subdued the nations under his feet. You may, for the moment, continue to be one of those subjects who's looking to overthrow his rule, but that's called vain raging in the scriptures that's psalm 2 right that raging against him is vain it's never going to happen you're never going to escape his rule even crucifying jesus 
only played right into God's sovereign plan. And you couldn't get rid of him because he was raised from the dead. Even that death and resurrection of Jesus only established him as king of the universe. That was the worst we could do to him. Even persecuting those who belong to Jesus and trying to stamp the church out of existence, it's only going to serve to advance his kingdom. That's what this revelation says. Because our power is in death and resurrection. And if if the enemies of the church initiate the first part, they're initiating our power in the world as Christ's kingdom. The only harm the enemies of Christ will do ultimately will be to themselves. And that's what you see throughout this section of Revelation. Because rejecting the king and resisting his kingdom, it really just means spiritual suicide. But Jesus is able to save you even from that, even from your attempt at spiritual suicide. That The plan of God has often included his enemies becoming hostile to the church. And then those same enemies seeing the faithful love of the ones that they persecute and then coming to fear the Lord and bow down before him in worship. That's what this says. That's my story. Somebody who is hostile to God. And that hostility to God must have been arranged so that I would be around Christians and see their faithful love and receive it and be converted. And maybe that's something like your story, too. It's the story of God destroying the destroyers by the power of his kingdom, which is the power of death and resurrection. That's the story of the trumpets. It might seem like a strange and terrible story, but ultimately it's a good one. Amen. Let's pray. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Please rule in our hearts by the power of your self-sacrificial love. Please make us on earth here to delight in your rule, even as your subjects in heaven delight in your rule. Please help us to faithfully testify to your kingdom through our love, and even through our death and resurrection as your people in a hostile world. And may all peoples come to fear and glorify your name, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.